A graphic novel, a TV show Well, it's not TV, it's HBO And will this thing succeed? And by how much, man? Some might cheer and some might scoff Because it's Damon Lindelof But either way we're off To watch some Watchmen Watching Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Who watches The Watchmen? Forget about that. Who minutes the Minutemen? I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And you are listening to Watchmen Watch, a podcast all about HBO's Watchmen. We're going to be talking about the very big, very game-changing sixth episode of the series, This Extraordinary Being. So that's pretty exciting. This is the one that people have been talking about, television critics have been talking about for months. They've been like, the show's great. Wait until you get to the sixth episode. Wait until you get to the sixth episode. You'll see what happens. So what do you think? Before we get into the recap, before we get into anything else, was this overhyped? Was it underhyped? Was it just hyped? The right amount. Perfect amount amount of hype. Just the right amount of hype. Yeah, just Uh, the tasty (laughs) hype. A smidge. Goldilocks situation. Exactly. I mean, honestly, this episode was great. It feels like a real statement piece for the series and pays Mm -hmm. off so much of the the themes that were established in the first scene of the first episode. Yeah, Yeah, it really does pay off uh, patience and, like, uh, they just they tie things up and make some statements, and it's just so beautifully shot. And it's exactly what the audience wants. We have these questions, and what a cool way to get those answers! But by living through this, you know, going through the memories in this black and white, old timey fun, it's just really beautiful. And it really fleshes out a lot of the original series, the comic book series. We touch on, mm-hmm. uh, get a backstory on on Hooded Justice in a way that we've never seen in the comics. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, if you have read the comics, you know that there is uh, back matter in each one of them. And for the first few chapters of the comic book series, you get to read chapters from Hollis Mason's tell-all Under the Hood. He was the first night owl in this continuity. He wrote a very, I I think it's fair to call it tawdry take on his feral superheroes in the Minutemen. Uh, There were things that came out like the sexual assault that the comedian uh, perpetrated on Silk Spectre uh, and other things like that. He also touches on rumors about Hooded Justice, that Hooded Justice was gay, that nobody knew who Hooded Justice was. But we don't really find out a lot about Hooded Justice in the comic book series other than these notes and a flashback that happens in the comic book proper to the night that the comedian assaulted Silk Spectre and Hooded Justice, who was pretending to be in a relationship with Silk Spectre, uh, came to save her and stop him, uh, though ultimately threw in a little, a couple of crinks of his own, let's say. Um, So, yeah, to your point, it's very interesting. It also, I think, follows up very directly on a conversation that Lady True and Will Reeves had a couple of episodes back when they were talking about this nostalgia, and we'll explain what nostalgia is in a second, uh, where they were saying they need Angela Abar to take this nostalgia. Oh, is that too cute of a way of doing it? I don't know. That feels too silly. And ultimately, it's not. You know, it is definitely a narrative way of doing it. It's a written way of doing it. But to your point, Pete, what they do is they come at it visually rather than having somebody sit down and just blurb out all this exposition. And it's just a smart way that I think ties into the overall way that the show is approaching things by playing around with media, by playing around visuals. Yeah. And, uh, Memory and masks, I feel like, uh, is a theme for the, they are themes for the whole series, but especially this episode where we see layers on layers of of Will for sure and other characters being peeled away and revealed underneath. It's really it, this was a sort of a stressful episode. Uh, he was saying <laughs> yeah. how it's beautifully made. The way it's shot is so it puts you in the action in a way that so many other 
uh, TV shows or ways of doing it just wouldn't accomplish. It reminded me a lot of uh, Birdman, um, the movie Birdman, mm, with the, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. music choices and some of the uh, ways it was shot, um, which was cool. I don't know if that was purposeful or not, but interesting. It definitely, it reminded me, Birdman's an interesting touch point. I think you're absolutely correct about that. It reminded me actually a lot of Legion, which is a show that we also did a podcast for recapping, just in terms of there would be similar attempts to delve into the main character, David's memory, where you'd go tumbling down the rabbit hole. And even there's one point, it's not an Alice in Wonderland reference. I think they're doing more of a Wizard of Oz reference because at one point, uh, Will Reeves' wife is reading... Wizard of Oz to the sun. So it is following this rail yellow brick road uh, and getting lost in that way. But it same sort of thing where it's this visual innovation. It's using the screen and the idea of superhero stories to tell something that otherwise is a relatively straightforward history of this man's life. Yeah. Also the fact that like, like Justin is saying, it's so powerful uh, and you're feeling it. And also they do a great job of cutting back to, uh, you know, uh, Sister Knight, like her, the main character we're following. Like, it's not just all memory. We get glimpses of her, too. And the way it kind of snaps back to the present at moments. Uh, just so interwoven, like the comic where, where like everything was connected. Also, the reusing of like dialogue to emphasize different things. Uh, really just... Uh, very not only very powerful in your face and you're stressed and feeling all this stuff, but also like really well well put together. And uh, one, the, one other uh, thing we talked about uh, this episode a little bit when our um, in our earlier episode I think four point five with Charles, uh, mm-hmm. and he he talked a lot about how to him this episode was about trauma and how trauma affects your life, and I thought in yeah. uh, watching it. With that in mind uh, and seeing the way that it flashes back to certain touch points, the woman playing the piano is an image we see. Anytime uh, Will's trauma is sort of hit again or the ripples of it are realized, yeah. both of the tall, being at the Tulsa riot and just like dealing with uh, horrifying racism his entire life, we see that imagery again as he's like peeling off a mask or putting a mask back on or, or something like that. Yeah. And it, it really I – lo- I like that framing of it, the trauma – and mm-hmm. effects of trauma on a person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just uh, one okay. quick uh, textual note, just because somebody uh, mentioned this very pleasantly, I believe, on our Twitter account, Watch and Watch One. Uh, but the preferred terming is Tulsa Massacre instead of Tulsa Riot, uh, ah, because mm-hmm. Tulsa Riot certainly implies something very different True. than what was actually going on. Uh, so just inter- when we're talking about it on the podcast going forward, uh, Pete, what were you going to say, though? Oh, uh, I was just going to say that, like, um, yeah, I, I, it was like the, Justin is saying, like, the, the, the trauma, the, the, the racism and the pain, the anger. They called him an angry kid for a little while. And, like, just the way, like, it really kind of you could see the choices that he made and why he made those choices and kind of like his path. Uh, it was real. Uh, uh, it was very, very well done. Uh, last you can't visual. say it enough. <laughs> yeah, good show. Once again, yeah. pretty, pretty shocking, but uh, it's a good show. Uh, the last visual touch point I wanted to bring up, and then I do want to get into the recap here, uh, the precap, and then the recap, and all of that good cap stuff, uh, including Captain Metropolis, who we meet later. He's another cap. Lots of caps in this episode. So many the, caps. We, Justin and I were having a discussion about what seemed like a one-off joke at first in the previous episode when Wade, looking gas, is talking to the woman who's eventually revealed to be Seventh Cavalry, and they're talking about this sort of Schindler's List riff that happens in the world of Watchmen. It seems like Steven Spielberg never made Schindler's List. He actually made a movie called Pale Horse that was all about the squid explosion in New York. Uh, And they talk about how the movie is all in black and white, except for one little girl in red who's wandering through, which is the visual device that Steven Spielberg does use in Schindler's List. But they also actually use it here as well. So (laughs) in a weird way, even though... 
I was uncomfortable about the erasing of Schindler's List from history. I think this retroactively explains that and justifies that choice by using that visual motif here to emphasize certain things throughout the episode. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool sort of double back and double down. And it like, uh, like was said, uh, that this is a remix of Watchmen. They keep remixing even the elements that they're using in the show Mm -hmm. to make this like awesome, uh, mashup that is more than the sum of its parts. Now, the important things that you need to know going into this episode, now that we've talked for 10 minutes about what we felt about it, uh, is that there's a guy named Will Reeves. He is the grandfather of a woman named Angela Abar. Angela Abar is a cop in Tulsa. In Tulsa, they both... All cops have to wear masks. They have to do this because they were attacked by a group called the 7th Calvary that seems to be a racist group inspired by the vigilante Rorschach. She dresses up as a superhero named Sister Knight. Superhero is the wrong word. It's more just masked vigilante. Vigilante, yeah. Uh, And last episode, while trying to protect her grandfather, who she never knew until she discovered him next to the chief of police, Judd Crawford, who he claims to have hung from a tree. Uh, She ended up covering it up, finding out that he had these pills called nostalgia that uh, essentially hold his memories. Uh, They're a drug that was uh, given to people with dementia back a couple of years prior. Um, Oh, we have a dog on the podcast, by the way. Yes. yes. Is that uh, Pip Don't Slip? Yeah, that is my dog, Pip. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's all right. Who pips the Pip, man? That's what I want to know. So Angela was being taken away because she was seemingly being implicated in this crime. The police didn't know exactly what was going on, but uh, they were grabbing her anyway. And she downed the entire bottle of pills of nostalgia, which leads us directly into this episode. Other little notes that you should probably know is there is a TV program called American Hero Story, which is a Ryan Murphy-esque show that tells the, currently in the second season, the history of the Minutemen, the vigilantes that were active before the vigilantes that we follow in the graphic novel Watchmen, though again, we do flash back to them occasionally. Uh, Also, there's a character named Laurie Blake, played by Gene Smart, who coincidentally was also in Legion. I'm just throwing it out there. And (laughs) she is an FBI agent. She is a former vigilante. She's been very much sparring with Angela Abar and has currently been running the investigation of what happened the night that Judd Crawford was murdered. Um, What else do you need to know? I guess the last thing that you probably need to know is that Angela discovered a Ku Klux Klan outfit in Judd Crawford's closet. It had a badge on it. That seemed to be something from back in the Tulsa Massacre, which is where we first met Will Reeves when he was a child escaping with his parents who didn't end up making it out. So that all said, why don't we jump uh, into one the One last episode? thing. Will finds oh, yeah. a, uh, a girl, a baby, um, in the wreckage mm. of his, the car when he, uh, yeah, and he is, carries her wakes out. up. And he carries her out with him. Yes. Uh, now, before we jump into it, I do want to mention uh, the past couple of episodes we talked about what the title means. Um, I got to tell you, I don't know about this one. The only reference I found was a song by Emily Sunday called Extraordinary Being, which is from X-Men Dark Phoenix. And I don't think they're referencing that. No, I don't mm. think so. <clears throat> so I'm not 100% sure what the title comes from. I don't know if you folks have any idea or if anybody just, online can let us know. I think it's... Uh, kind of like, uh, this is just a guess, but I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, this guy was an extraordinary being with all he had to endure and all the things that happened to him. Yeah. All right. Could be. It sounds like this is this extraordinary being that feels like something that was in the Watchmen comic, maybe as a description Mm -hmm. of Dr. Manhattan, perhaps. Uh, yeah. You know what? Uh, While we're doing the recap, I'll just take a quick look and look that up. Um, but why don't, why don't we jump into it? Because we actually kick off with a neat title where it switches from Watchmen to Minutemen, which I think yeah. very, very simply sets up that we're going to be in the past all episode. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, well, you want to get into it. We start with um, Hooded Justice. Uh, we realize that we are in the, uh, the show, um, the Minutemen show, that the very Ryan Murphy-style show. 
Uh, he's being interrogated. Uh, there's the these two FBI agents um, have evident photo evidence of him having sex with Captain Metropolis. There's or Captain Metropolis having sex with a lot of other people, including J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and we see mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the scene, it's framed the uh, Hoove, the Hoove, as we call him um, in American sure. history. He's a good friend of ours. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, but I love the way there are these sort of odd framing with uh, Hooded Justice's face in the foreground and the FBI in the background. Yeah. And I almost feel like this is uh, making the show making fun of itself, the like strong visual choices it makes, or also comic book shows in general that try to comic book up the way the episodes are shot. Um, yeah. That felt like a fun little little zing. Well, and there's also another great reveal, which we knew about from the credits, but hadn't actually seen his face. Uh, the police officers get the hooded justice in the American Hero Story show to take off his mask, which, of course, parallels what we're getting over the course of the episode, which is we find out who hooded justice really is. Uh, but under the mask is Cheyenne Jackson. And Cheyenne Jackson is an actor who very frequently is on Ryan Murphy shows. So it's such specific, clear casting. And I thought it was so funny when he eventually takes off that mask. Yeah. Um, And also like thinking about this scene again, after watching the whole episode, this TV version of taking the mask off, it feels like this bravado choice, like finally revealing himself. And then so much of the episode is about how um, putting on masks are often, it's not a choice you make uh, on your own. It's something that you're forced into doing or something that you, yep. are, you are masking something else because you don't know how to deal with something bad that happened to you, a trauma or a mask that is just society puts on you. So the way that it, I love the way that this sort of is the Hollywood version and then we get the much more complicated emotionally, uh, emotional version as the rest of the episode unfolds. Well, to your point, that ties into what Lori Blake was telling to Angela, I believe not in the previous episode, but two episodes back, where Lori believes that uh, you wear masks because you are hiding your trauma. That's the reason that you're doing it. And I think you're absolutely correct. I think at the at the very least, that's what Damon Lindelof and company are saying with this show, is that's why superheroes wear them versus what we show in the Marvel movies versus what we show uh, in the DC movies, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we, so we jump and, uh, sister Knight's in jail. Um, she's taken all this nostalgia. Um, we get, uh, Laurie explaining exactly what's happening to her and it's not good. Uh, we hear that lady true owns the nostalgia. We hear how it's made and what it is. Uh, such great. But she wants her to sign the release so she can pump her stomach and stop her from experiencing this. And yeah. it, it made me think like, Lori is, is probably trying to save Angela's life, but mm-hmm. more importantly, she's trying to stop what's happening. Whatever these pills are about to reveal, I think she's yeah. worried it's going to damage uh, her case or the system that she's upholding. She's, I, yeah, she's worried she's going to be a vegetable and not be able to yeah give her info. It's interesting that you read it like that because I... I feel like we've had these small moments of the real honest Lori coming through where she's so wry, she's so caustic, she's trying to be like her father, Eddie Blake, the comedian. Uh, But underneath that, there is a vulnerability. And what I got out of the scene is she's scared. Like, she is scared for Angela. She doesn't want her to die. I think despite what Angela has done or she thinks she's done, she sees a certain kinship with Angela at the same time, she can connect with her. Uh, so I don't know. I, th- that's the level that I got it on, but I, I see what you're saying as well. I mean, I think it can be, it, we don't really know Lori, who Lori is. We've gotten yeah. a couple different sort of sides of her, but she could be someone who is truly uh, chasing truth, uh, or she could be someone who is not like, right. Yeah. I, I'm kind of just hoping she's just a gruff kind of like detective and like not trying to uh, be like the comedian, trying to be better. Like a real like a real crime dog. Yeah. Like, you know, gruff crime dog. We need more of those. You want her to take a bite out of crime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that's what the show needs, honestly. We've got a couple of episodes left, and a couple of crime dogs don't show up. I'm going to be very disappointed. If Lube Man and McGruff teamed up, oh, they would take out all the crime. So once Angela refuses to have her stomach pumps, the memories start rolling in, and we get we dip into this world uh, of Will's life. Which man, did it really just get going at that at that moment? 
what I thought was an interesting choice throughout because we're in black and white. It keeps switching back and forth between Will and Angela as Will experiencing those memories and us literally sitting there. Uh, and the camera kind of zooms back and forth. Uh, they do this neat trick throughout the episode where the camera will pan away from Will onto another character, then pan back and it's Angela and then same back and forth. What I thought was really interesting and good about what they did was twofold. One, that it wasn't consistent. Yeah. That, uh, it wasn't, there wasn't a repetitiveness of that effect. Sometimes we will pan away, come back and it's still will. And the other thing is that it wasn't one shot. I thought they were going to be doing the whole thing in one shot at the beginning. And there were certainly large sections where they went for that, but it felt like that would have been too much of a magic trick throughout when they already have all of these incredible, magically realistic things that are happening. And also then it becomes about that thing as opposed to like the story they're telling. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I I agree with you, like the way that it would go from Will off and then it'd be Will again as opposed to Angela. It kept you like engaged the whole time. It kept you like leading into the episode and it was just unsettling because another show might use that as a little gimmick trick to uh, flash back and forth between the characters. But this, it was just like, no, keep watching, keep watching, because we have so much more to sort of tell you. Yeah. Well, what do you think the purpose was there? Was it uh, specifically when Angela came out and when she did not come out? What What were the... I, I'm sure there were different choices each time, but why did that happen? Why did that not happen? I, I kind of also like the fact that, like, because she's on these drugs... You know, like, I think the sloppiness of it kind of makes you kind of have that, like, oh, shit, what's going to happen kind of drug fear and danger of. And I I think that was kind of like why they were doing it like that. Yeah. But what my point being, there's specific reasons that Angela will come out, that she'll come to the forefront of the memory and be there and we'll actually see Regina King in the scene. Why was that? Why was that happening? It felt like when the emotions were peaking, we Angela popped up a little bit. Like, because we see her mm-hmm. right at the top, which sort of establishes it when he's getting his badge and he's uh, passed over by the white cop, and then the black cop comes in, puts the badge on him. Um, later, uh, and at the end, we see uh, her when Judd is. Um, killing himself basically yeah. under Will's direction. Like, so it's these big emotional moments and where Will is being, is feeling extreme emotions, but also Angela herself is feeling these extreme emotions. Mm. Right. Then we get a, an important plot thing that happens in this scene when he's getting the badge where the black cop gives him the badge and then leans in and says, beware of the Cyclops. And this is, to me, the first clear indication of who the bad guys are and the connection is, uh, you know, we've talked a bit, quite a bit on the bonus podcast in particular about this one eye symbol that seems to be the squid that was in New York. At least that's what I thought it was, what we thought it was. Uh, you see that in the wall in the back of the Seventh Calvary, where they're operating out of in the abandoned mall in the last episode. We also talked about how there was this supplementary material where uh, the first Senator Keene, not Senator Keene Jr., who we've seen in the show, but the Senator Keene who initially outlawed masked vigilantes, sent a letter to Judd Crawford. And it had that same one eye symbol there that we see throughout this episode. Uh, And it does seem to be connecting the dots quite a bit. I don't know how it connects to the squid. Maybe it's just a recurring visual motif more than anything. Uh, But it certainly seems to connect the Seventh Cavalry to Cyclops to the clan in a very specific way, right? And specifically, like, the, I mean, this comes in later, but the the mesmerizing of um, the population it matches with Adrian Veidt's plan, which he was sort of yeah. doing that with a, in a slightly different method. He was fooling everyone, but he was still just like changing the way their brains think about the world. And that's what this sort of smaller version of, uh, of the Cyclops plan seems to be as they have these projectors going around to uh, uh, movie theaters that are in black population populated areas and legit Awful. hypnotizing them. Like what a wild, I mean, obviously that's later, but what a wild reveal that was. And then to have Will using that technique on Judd at the end, I thought. Yeah. 
It was so good. Well, well while we're talking about this, I think one of the smartest things about this, and this gets back to something you were saying earlier, Justin, is a lot of what Will is doing this way is he is, you could either say reclaiming or appropriating. I think both are appropriate, depending on what you're talking about. But the fact that he gets hung, a hood gets put on him, and he takes that noose and that hood and uses it as his symbol. And then later on, he takes these crystals that are being used to mesmerize people through film projectors, turns them into a flashlight in order to kill Judd, and presumably in the intervening 80 years or whatever it is, he's used that technique before on other members of Cyclops. That's using their techniques and their fears against them. It's him taking that trauma and dealing with it head on, if you wanted to make that connection. Yeah. Um, so good. Uh, and a lot of this, th- this beginning bit establishes a lot of the, the camera work that runs through the whole episode. These like super close up shots that are spinning around the characters really like from a, most cameras are positioned so that they can almost be like a third person in the room. This puts you in the characters that are there. Cause you're, it's an unsettling angle to watch everything in. And it was just so it, it immersed you in this, this in Will's life, and I thought it was just such a strong choice for the episode. Well, to mm-hmm. the point that we get a POV, almost video game style shot towards the end of the episode as Will is going through and killing members of Cyclops in a warehouse. Um, so I think that's spot on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The the plot the plot to me. I mean, we almost. I don't want to breeze through it necessarily, but I think we could almost lay out the span of the plot and then go out and pick out specific things we saw. Yeah. Because essentially what happens is Will Reeves is this cop. He's warned about Cyclops. He sees a guy burning a Jewish deli very casually. uh, And this is right at the start of World War II when a lot of people in America supported Nazis pretty openly Mm. up until they turned out to be real bad dudes. Uh, And then, hey, even uh, even now in America, uh, but he gets up, tracks down the guy, takes him back to the police station. They book him. Everybody seems to be on board. Then he makes the Cyclops symbol, this OK right on his forehead, uh, and he's let out the next day. Pete, you seem to be raising your hand. There's something you want to talk about here? Yeah, because uh, this is the first time we get the Because repeat. you love Nazis. That's what you wanted to well, fuck in. you for saying that out loud. <laughs> well, um, uh, you I just think- collect the memorabilia? Fuck you, dude. Um, the, <laughs> Too far. He goes, the, you know, he goes, hey. And then the racist asshole Nazi dude goes, hey, yourself. And then the first time we see, uh, I believe, is it Angela, his soon-to-be wife? She says, hey. He says, hey, to her. And then she responds with, hey, yourself. Sally? Or are you Sally. talking about Sally? Yeah. yeah. He does not marry his granddaughter in this <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's coming. The big, I don't want to spoil the ninth episode, but there's a big, really fucked up wedding. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, but yeah, your, that was like the first uh, repeat. So I just wanted to kind of point that mm-hmm. out. To your point, I think that shows just how casual, I mean, the, what I took away from that was how casual this, this character, this repeating uh, Cyclops, I guess, leader, the guy that owns the warehouse, I think his name is Red. Uh, the way that he is just so casual about the way he is uh, being racist, uh, a criminal, just like, a, a nightmare asshole. Uh, yeah, I th- it makes him. I, I thought that was just a, a. He's not at all cartoonish. He's so down to earth. It makes it even more horrifying. Yeah. yeah. So he does end up taking him in. The guy gets out immediately. We get this amazing visual of Will pounding his way out of the doors of the police station, right onto the street, uh, finding out. Uh, what's going on here that the guy has just been let go. He goes back, finds out that it was Cyclops and he should stay away from it. Uh, And then a bunch of the cops find out about it. Uh, They invite him out to a drink, quote unquote, but it's actually to beat him up, drag him to a tree, hang him until he's nearly dead. And then they take him down and say, stay out of your business. This isn't your business. You stay with black cop business. Yes, Pete. The, image of the cop car driving away saying another time and then seeing the fact that it's dragging people behind it was just absolutely horrifying and just like what a 
powerful, great shot to, to kind of emphasize the racism, and it was just unbelievable. And plus, it's it's sort of Will sensing like this is it touches on the trauma from the Tulsa massacre, and it he's you can tell he's already like aware like this is going to haunt me, and then it does almost instantly. Yeah, and just to mention, I don't think that's actually happening. That's just a bunch no. of memories happening at the same time. Yeah. Uh, because I, I will say the first time I saw it, when you see those bodies, those bloody bodies being dragged behind, I thought, oh, my God, what is happening here? Yeah. But as soon as they came back in the alleyway, it was clear to me that, oh, okay, that's this is this memory. These things are starting to conglomerate and join together in a certain yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, but... He wanders back after he's been hung. He comes on a fight in an alleyway, uh, pokes two holes in the hood, beats up a bunch of guys and gets thanked by the two white people who are being beaten up by the thugs, Uh, goes back to Sally and says, yes, I am angry. I am an angry man. I don't know what to do with that anger. And she encourages him after they see the paper has hailed him as a hero and they conglomerate that with the film that he had seen that we saw back in the first episode uh, about Bass Reeves, the black marshal of Oklahoma, that this is what you need to do. You need to bring justice the way you can. You're never going to be able to do that as a cop, and you're not going to survive if you just stay a cop. So, yeah, Pete. Uh, well, I just so... <laughs> Uh, uh, unbelievable! The cut By shot. By the way, to Pete, hit. if you want, there's only three hosts on the podcast. You can just talk. Well, you yeah, but I, I don't want to interrupt. I wanted you to like. If I interrupt you and then you can't remember what you how you're going to finish, I was just. I always nice. remember fucking oh. everything. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm a um, steel trap, man. What were but, we just talking about? The elephant the, himself. The cut shot, though, to him just walking in, being like, "Yes, I am an angry kid," was just so. Just I love the way like through these memories, we were just cutting to these big moments, like just a powerful stuff. And the way she then was like, that's how you get your you're not going to get your justice through your badge. It's through this hood, you know, just like these like just really well worded, powerful. Like uh, it was just so great the way they thought about everything when it uh, on the layers on layers of masks and uniforms like. Uh, Will became a cop to uh, chase justice, and he found out that a lot of the cops he was working with are actively uh, disrupting justice and committing crimes. So then he has to yeah. get on this other uniform with another mask, and then he has to wear a second mask in the form of the the uh, makeup he puts on to make him uh, look like a, his eyes, as which people yeah. see through the holes of the mask, as if he's a, a white person. That added mask layer there that he can't even mm-hmm. just wear a mask. He has to wear a second mask just to do this thing where it, to, to chase justice for the people around him and solve this conspiracy. It just like it's so subtly done in this in this episode. It's great. Well, and even beyond that, uh, maybe you just mentioned this and I missed it, but also he's gay. You know, that's the other yeah. thing. He's married and has a kid and has to hide the fact that he's gay at the same time or yeah. bisexual. They never explicitly right. state it, but right. either way, he's hiding that part of himself as well. So, uh, like you're saying, layers on layers and layers. Um, I, let, let's stop and talk about the white mask for a bit because this is... We've suspected, and I think they they haven't exactly hidden this, but we've suspected that Will was hooded justice since the first episode of the show. That's not what they think an American hero story, and that's certainly not what you're necessarily meant to think when you're reading Watchmen, the comic book, because the way that John Higgins colors him is it's Caucasian skin. Yeah. So they end up explaining that through makeup, Uh, I got to tell you, and this is not giving myself credit at all. Like 100%. Please don't. Please do not. And in fact, if you do give credit, we will take that credit away. (laughs) Okay. So I've always known that Hooded Justice was black and I'm amazing and smart. No. Well, this is actually the reason I don't want to give myself credit is because reading Watchmen and even when we're reviewing it again, The fact that he was in a hood that had a very specific point, like a Ku Klux Klan hood, but it was black, and he's wearing a noose around his neck, in my head, I was always like, no, he's a black man. 
And then I looked at the coloring and for whatever reason in again, in my head was like, well, that's a coloring mistake, I guess, even though, of course, it's not a coloring mistake or anything like that. But even without having seen the show, I've always kind of thought that he was black, that he was African-American. So it's definitely a retcon because I don't think Alan Moore and Dave Givens actually meant that. But I do think Moore, this reveal they? completely tracks with everything they set up in the comic, whether they meant it or not. Yeah, I think it definitely tracks. It's curious. Uh, why Why did Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons never have Hoda Justice take his mask off around the rest of the Minutemen? Like, that's a, that's a fact from the comic book. So this mm-hmm. plays into that and answers that question. But I'm curious. I would be curious to find out if what those guys had in mind when they wrote it. Because this, to your, as you're saying, this like perfectly takes advantage of that choice in the comic and makes it this super interesting uh, thing to play in this series. Yeah. But it's, it's also such a crazy thing for him to be like, our, you know, he gets that meeting with Captain Whitey there and he's like, you, we can have Captain Metropolis? Up. You yeah, mean? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like we can team up and we can really help what you're going through. And it is like such a like, oh, my God. Yes, dude. You can take out like all those assholes in your you know community. This is going to be sick. And then he's it's immediately like, you know, like you have to wear the hood around everybody else. They're not, you know, and it's just like, oh, no. It went from such a high to such a low so fast. Yeah. Well, let's jump to that. And then again, we will go back on touch on various things because I think there's a lot to talk about with this episode. Uh, But after he's been operating for a little while and taking down members of Cyclops, uh, he does get asked by Captain Metropolis in his civilian guise. He's pretty bad about hiding out, hiding who he is, uh, becomes and invites uh, Hooded Justice to join him. He either knows that Will is hooded justice or is not 100% sure and giving him the opportunity. But either way, they touch hands briefly, which sets off them knowing that each other is also gay. Uh, They end up sleeping together. Captain Metropolis seems very into the whole superhero lifestyle. They've all been inspired by hooded justice. And Will gets very excited to have help to take down Cyclops. But at their first press conference together, Captain Metropolis instead shifts the attention to Moloch the Mystic, who has a sun machine he says is going to destroy the world, and unveils an ad, which we saw back in the first episode, which is a very racist ad of Dollar Bill uh, beating up a black man. Uh, So it becomes very clear to Will immediately what the Minutemen are actually about, and it's not about helping him at all. Yeah, he's being so, exploited uh, once again. Captain Metropolis, mm-hmm. he trusts him. They have this relationship, and then every scene after that is just Captain Metropolis taking further and further steps away and just damaging uh, Will to the point yeah. where he uh, sort of on the phone booth later on in the episode when he realizes he's completely on his own and sort of uh, something flips, and that's when he encounters the the guy named Red, the uh, warehouse manager again. And we'll probably get to that later. But I thought this, uh, Kevin Metropolis was giving off big time Ozymandias vibes to me, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. And just the way that uh, the, the ad, the bank ad and how it, that was just such a great smart way to just totally flip him and be like, he's just in it for his own advantage. Yeah, which is something that we kind of knew from Watchmen the comic as well, that a lot of these masked vigilantes weren't actually doing it out of some sense of justice or anything like that. They were doing it for fame or like the comedian because they were sociopaths, you know, and that was all they knew how to do. Um, There are very few of them that truly were superheroes in any sense of the word. And if anything, Hooded Justice is probably maybe the only one, you know, at least at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Because he he became a superhero. He was the first and he did it um, sort of like not at all on purpose out of dealing with a horrible situation and just acting out. He masked himself because both like he, he beats up those crooks trying to rob the rich couple. 
both because he believes in justice, but also he just went through this horrifying thing and he needs to act out some yeah. of this anger, this, and it was, it's great. It just gives him such a different motivation that we talked about earlier. Like you're wear a mask because you're dealing with your trauma. Yeah. I do wonder, and this is potentially getting into too much of a thing right here in the middle of this recap, but I was thinking a lot about the branching point between the Watchmen universe and our universe while I was watching this episode. We've always kind of known that hooded justice was the thing that sent things off on a different path, that he was a masked vigilante. He inspired other masked vigilantes that led to the creation of Dr. Manhattan, which led to America winning the Vietnam War, uh, all sorts of new technology, et cetera, et cetera. So it's definitely this Rube Goldberg machine that spun out into a bunch of different things. But I kind of wonder whether him putting on the mask was the branching point or potentially him surviving Tulsa was the branching point, you know, and I don't know that it matters necessarily, but it was certainly an idea that was rolling around in my head while I was watching this. Yeah. It almost mm-hmm. felt like the beginning of this was the young will watching that movie in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what actually inspired him and set the first domino off, uh, onto where we are now. Mm-hmm. And everything is pretty much the same, uh, up until he puts on the hood and fights people in the alleyway. Yeah. So, Again, it could be there could be something else that we find out later that there is a thing that happened differently, but uh, ultimately that does set the world off in a different path. The other thing that we could probably touch on right here in the middle before we get to the rest of the recap of the episode is let's talk about Superman. And this is something that I wanted to talk about for quite a bit, uh, but we haven't really brought up on the podcast and it's driven home here in this episode where Will actually reads Action Comics number one in a newsstand, a news vendor hands it to him and says, yeah, it's this new thing. This guy puts on tights and he fights crime and he has superpowers. Uh, in Watchmen, the comic book, there is a mention of Action Comics. In fact, Hollis Mason talks about it as well, how it was so exciting when it came out. But Action Comics in the real world, in our world, kicked off superhero comics kicked off that whole genre, led to DC Comics, Marvel Comics, every single comic that you can imagine. Uh, but in this world, because Hooded Justice became to Master Vigilante and various other people became Mass Vigilantes, superhero comics never became popular. Instead, pirate comics were very popular, which led directly to Pirate Jetty, one of the characters that we don't see this episode. Um, but... So that's a point there. Of course, it seems like Hooded Justice was inspired in part by reading that Superman comic book, and that's why it's in there. But there's been so much Superman imagery throughout the show. Yeah, we talked about it. He, we talked about yeah. it in the first episode a little bit, um, and then when he sees the comic, he we flash to the scene from the first episode where he is yeah. uh, the car has crashed and he picks up uh, Sally and. The parents have died, it, it, and the other parents are there. So, like, it, you feel that, and we get to see the visual connection here as well. Well, yeah, it's the even origin beyond. story is the same. Yes. So there's that part. But the thing that I want to delve into even a little bit further is there's all of that, and all that makes sense. But there's a lot more Superman throughout it. We had in the Lady True episode, she goes to the Clark farm, just like <laughs> Clark Kent. Uh, it, something falls from the sky just the way that Superman's pod falls from the sky and they notice it. Uh, There's also the whole thing about the Clarks being a childless couple. They're just hoping for a child and they ultimately get this child. So there's that. There's also uh, Angela's husband who is named Cal and Cal L is Superman in the books as well. So I'm just wondering what you take away from this because honestly it's, off-putting is the wrong word. It's just confusing to me because I get all of the Watchmen references throughout the show. That makes Makes sense sense. to me uh, because it's a show called Watchmen, but it's not a Superman show. Why is there so much Superman in here? Well, I think it's just kind of like how comics are supposed to kind of be inspiring and like him stopping to kind of get that inspiration from action comics. Number one is just kind of like a, they're just kind of commenting on it. Well, and I think 
to what you were saying earlier, like Superman kicks off superhero comics as a thing, which eventually led to Watchmen as sort of the first thing that really dissected superhero comics in the comic book form. And then this show is, is doing the same thing. It's just taking it that next step further. So it, it makes sense why Superman, unless it's a more of a plot thing and we're going to actually get Superman rolling through. Yeah, that would be bonkers, and I don't necessarily see that happening. It's just because Watchmen is a different universe than the DC Comics characters, it's just been a strange thing that keeps throwing me off a little bit whenever it pops up in the show. It may may just be a thematic thing like you're talking about. It may just be we're dealing with superheroes. How do you not deal with superheroes without mentioning Superman in some way? Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Just something I wanted to bring up there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, where were we? He is working with the Minutemen, except not really. Uh, Will in his cop guys ends up going to a movie theater and seeing there's a massacre there outside. The other cops say, yeah, you put a bunch of animals in a cage. Of course, that's what Ugh. they're going to do. Awful. And he goes inside and mostly everybody's dead, except for one sobbing woman who explains she doesn't know why she did what she was doing. He calls Captain Metropolis for help, realizes they're probably doing some sort of mesmerism thing. Captain Metropolis doesn't believe him. Totally says the mocks asshole. him. Mocks him, says that sounds ridiculous, which certainly points to whatever he was saying about Moloch the Mystic is also completely made up. Yeah. yeah. And Moloch never had a sun machine or anything like that. Uh, the only thing that is real is Cyclops having this mesmerism technology. Uh, and as Will walks out, he encounters this guy, uh, the racist who burnt the deli. <laughs> the, says, the racist, the one racist, yeah, the, one, the one racist of the show. Everybody else very on the level. No. Uh, and he says, Oh, I know what you want. You want some steaks, makes a reference about, uh, his penis size. Uh, and, uh, calls him some racist names, at which point Will kills him. Hell yeah. Yeah. Just straight up shoots him in the head, puts mm. on his hood, even though he's wearing his cop uniform, and this is where we get this POV shot as he goes into the warehouse, kills all the members of Cyclops, encounters the cop who was initially hung him on the tree. The cop is recording a message. It's clearly some sort of mesmerism message to get uh, black folks to kill other white folks. Uh, no, excuse me, black folks to kill each other and not other white folks. Uh, and he kills that man. We don't find it until later. Takes, a, takes the projector, which has some of the crystals in it, uh, and burns down the entire warehouse. Yeah. Uh, now, is it, is it before this point that Will's son sees him, he comes back and sees him with the makeup? No, that's right after. Right okay. after all that. So right after all that, he comes back and sees his son, is wearing his makeup, wearing his costume, and says, I'm just like you, Dad. Yeah. And Will flips out. Yeah. Tries to take the makeup off of him. Sally takes their son, leaves, heads back to Tulsa, uh, and he is left alone, at which point we flash forward to Judd Crawford's murder. He mesmerizes. Yes. Real quick, let's talk about that for a second. Like, yeah. Because his son looks at him as a hero, and he looks at his son putting on his mask and being like, I don't want you to be trapped in this hall of mirrors Yeah, I don't want you to have life. to deal with all that I have to, yeah. And this is coming off him, like, finally... I mean, he kills a bunch of people, furthering his trauma. But at the same time, he sort of collapses this little section of the Cyclops uh, conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Again, like these mixed feelings of like, I, did I do the right thing? No, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It feels bad. It feels good. We flash to the uh, Tulsa burning as the warehouse burns. It's all jumbled. And he, it, I think... It seems to me the Will character, like, all his identities are mixed up between Captain Metropolis, Sally, his son, and he can't get to which one is on top, and it's really hard to deal with. Also, yeah. the whole, like, we see for the first time someone being a cop in the uniform and also wearing a mask, which later becomes a thing. Yeah. Uh, it's really crazy. And it's just, just this thing of, like... He's been trying to fight this, fight this, fight this, and then he finally just kind of snaps. After he reaches out, he does his cry for help, and nobody's there, and it's just him, and he's alone again, and he just, and that guy, racist guy just pushes him over the edge, and then kind of like falls into this great plan for getting rid of all the, you know, kind of racists in that warehouse. 
Now, kind of Pete, I know it. why you thought it was great, because there was a lot of violence and it was killing racists. Yeah. Uh, Justin, how did you feel about that? I mean, the way in which he uh, it felt he, he he's a person who believes in justice and sticking to. Uh, this sort of set of morals he established that we saw in the original movie where the townspeople are like, hang him, hang the cop. Um, this is Bass Reeves in the, the silent film. And he's like, no, we're going we're gonna to do our real justice. And he breaks away from that moral code after he realizes he has no other options left. He trusted Captain Metropolis. He's trusted the system. Nothing helps him. And finally he breaks and starts killing them. And so, and then he can't deal with his, his family back at home Sally even says, like, you are gone. You've, you're committing violence yeah. now, no matter yeah. what who side you? you're... Yeah. yeah, who are you? And so it's, uh, it's difficult. I, I wonder where we're going to shake out with this, because going into this next scene, he, he kills... He has Judd kill himself with the same mesmerizing technology that the, the Cyclops, the, the clan members, were using on uh, him and the people around him. Um, and he, Judd, who... It's hard to tell even in this last scene. Is he, he's like, you don't know what you're doing. I'm trying to do something. And he's like, yeah. I saw your clan outfit. He's like, that's my grant. That's my legacy. And we don't know if he's trying to repair that legacy or further that legacy. It's hard to tell. Right. And then he just makes him kill himself without, we don't get to see the answers. So either Will knows the right answer or Will knows the wrong answer. And we, we don't know. This last well, scene. Well, I think. Go ahead. Uh, oh, sorry to interrupt. I, I just think. At this last scene, uh, to your point, Justin, I feel like uh, Will is broken at that point that he goes into the warehouse. Should those guys be allowed to exist? Should they be allowed to get the mesmerization technology out? Of course not. But it's horrific to watch because he has lost his moral code at this point. Yeah. He has lost the moral advantage. He's gone completely into the dark place and completely uh, accepted that. That's the will that we find 80 or so years later uh, at the tree with Judd Crawford. He sees everything in black and white. He even is very wry about it where he does the Cyclops thing on his head. He's like, yeah, oh, I know exactly who you are. Mm -hmm. I don't, I still have doubts about Judd being 100% evil because I don't think anybody is 100% evil in this show or in the world of Watchmen. Certainly the way that it's presented because he is mesmerized, I don't think he's lying about things. I don't think he's doing his charm bomb thing that he was doing in the first episode. He still thinks that he's doing the right thing and he still is potentially not a wholly bad person, but... It doesn't matter because that's how Will th- sees things now. If you're Cyclops, you're bad and you're dead. And that's it. Yeah. And I think like uh, that, to your point, what you're just saying, like I feel like it's like things happen to all of these characters and that's what makes them do the things that they're doing. And we get to heighten those choices with all this superheroic and sci-fi stuff that um, is making it seem yeah. wild and interesting and dramatic. But really, it's the same stuff that people deal with every day in our real world. They're driven by these traumas and they're trying to act out them, make themselves feel better, or make someone else feel worse to act out on what has happened to them. And it leads to these decisions that we were in this area where we, we don't know. We may find out Every answer we need to know about Judd and Will, we may not. And we're just left to make our own judgments on this supposedly simple superhero show, which is just has so much uh, commentary and depth to it that it's yeah. this episode is so good. Yeah. Uh, and the last little bit is that Angela does come out of it. We also didn't mention that during Hooded Justice's first big mission. Uh, He's fighting a bunch of Ku Klux Klan folks, Cyclops folks, in a grocery store. It's very much parallel to the American hero story scene where we first see Hooded Justice, and he jumps through a grocery store window into the grocery store and beats up a bunch of thugs. Here, they end up shooting at Hooded Justice. Hooded Justice jumps out the window and crashes through and freezes. Uh, Amazing shot. That freeze of it's like the super he's like literally doing the Superman pose through that window and it just like holds on it and then becomes this whole other thing. It's really, really well done. 
Well, and it turns out it's because they've given Angela a shot of adrenaline to try to yeah. wake her up. And Lori comes up and talks to her. Cal comes up and talks to her. Uh, they have seemingly managed to purge some of the nostalgia from her system and gotten out of her. Cal tries to connect with her and remind her who she is. Uh, and she's able to blink her eyes so that we know she's still there. And that ties into the end of the episode, which finally does wake up has a bunch of weird tubes attached to her. And lady true is there and talking to her. And that's, that's, I think where we end things, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now my question is, was this will and, by extension, Lady True's plan the entire time, or do they did this? They just sort of get lucky with what happened here. I think part of it. I think they imagined that she would take a pill of the nostalgia and find out more of Will's backstory because. Certainly, that seems like what they were talking about a couple of episodes back, that she needs this information. This is the quickest way of getting it to her. I don't think they imagined she would take the entire bottle of pills. I don't know, though, Alex. The way the, the nostalgia was described is it's, it harvests a memory, and that goes into the pill. Mm. So it's not like if she'd taken one pill, like would that it's not necessarily the first memory. Yeah, you know? I think she would just get like one kind of random memory. But since it's the whole bottle, you kind of get like so much of his life. I guess yeah, it, it's it, like when you get a bag of M&Ms, if you have one M&M, you're like, ah, that's a little chocolate. But if you eat the whole bag in one bite, you're like, oh, now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> that's just the right amount. I was supposed to eat one bag. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, why it's called a share size. Share it with yourself, man. Yeah. Share it oh, with man. yourself. Uh, but I, I guess I asked because the way Dr. Manhattan's powers work is he can see every bit of time at once. Mm-hmm. Um, he experiences all at once. So he, can't, he does not necessarily predict in the future. It's just everything exists in the same plane. Um, now, Will and Lady True would know that this is what happened if they had access to that same power set. Because mm. um, the level of confidence they had in, in talking to her and being able to then have this uh, way of waking her up out of the coma ready for her makes me think they maybe did know about it and had this is all part of their plan. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, that's a very tricky plan to set up, so, but it's totally possible. And I do think it's interesting that you're pointing out the whole Dr. Manhattan existing in the same time and place all over, uh, and Angela essentially doing the same thing. Um, I, I don't know if that's a particular plot thing or what it is, but uh, that's certainly neat. Uh, yeah. Before we wrap up here, any additional notes from the episode? Any other things that you want to call out? Uh, the only other potential Easter egg that I saw is I think it's when Will is walking across the street and he sees the deli, the guy at the deli. Uh, above it is an ad for Eddie's Bread, which kind of seemed like maybe it was Eddie, like the comedian, but maybe I'm looking too much into it. Speaking of the comedian, I thought it was interesting in the um, Minutemen scene where all of the other heroes are sort of blurred out in the background, and we don't get to see them. We only see uh, Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis. Hmm. Do you think? Uh, do you think that was a memory thing? Do you think that was a specific visual thing, or do you think that was just maybe a casting thing? Uh, not a casting thing. I think it was a choice because it's like it's like no, no. I know you want to see these other people, but this is the story we're telling. We're telling mm-hmm. Will's story. Captain Metropolis is in Will's story and meaningful there. The rest of them, the comedian, you can sort of, because they, they definitely wardrobe them as the Minutemen. He's there, but you don't see him. Yeah. Pete, were you going to say something here? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was just saying, uh, I was just kind of paging through my notes. Sorry. I just really like the, the old-timey kind of like piano music to kind of like keep the past <laughs> theme and like, I just, uh, just so the fact that it is so nostalgic for me, the viewer, and this drug is called nostalgia. Like the, I just, uh, you know, I just really liked it. Yeah, the song "My Echo, My Shadow, and Me" I thought was like particularly well chosen as a just a yeah. great song that fit the theme of the other music, but also like had great textual work there. Yeah. Uh, one last question I'll ask, and then we'll wrap up here. Why Cyclops? That's such a specific choice for a name for a group. It's not the clan. It's not, you know, the Seventh Cavalry. It's a new name that we've heard for what yeah. essentially I think is the same group. Uh, Cyclops, obviously a mythological creature with one eye. So it yeah. might be that they are myopic 
Yeah. But I don't think, I don't know. I, I, it just sort of raised my eyebrows a little bit because it feels like it's indicating something else, perhaps different than the squid that we've talked oh. about before. I, it's everyone's I just, favorite X-Man. Oh, oh yeah. you, you beat me to it, you son of a... I just think that yeah, it is kind of that thing of like, you know, the Cyclops only has one eye, so it, maybe it, it is not as clear vision-wise. It's inhibited, uh, just like these racist assholes uh, don't have a clear perspective on reality. And also, Cyclops being the shittiest member of the X-Men, racist, also shitty people, I think that's also a parallel, too. <laughs> wow. Aggressive. Oh, man. Going hard I've, for him. I bet we're going to find out in the next couple episodes what Cyclops mean. I would think it would go back to the original Cyclops story. Yeah. It, it just feels like if it is myopic, calling your group that is kind of dumb. Being like, we don't see things clearly. Yep. You know? Yeah. But... I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. A uh, couple of things to plug before we go. We do a bonus episode of this podcast that is only available in the Watchmen Watch feed, so please do subscribe there to check it out. Those go up Thursday mornings, and we definitely want your questions and comments and theories on this episode, on all of the episodes, on the final three episodes oh, no. of the season. Uh, so hit us up at WatchmanWatch1 on Twitter for any of that. Also, WatchmanWatch podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe and comment on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We'll chat with you about Watchmen. And if you want to support this show and other shows that we do, patreon.com slash comic book club. We have a Patreon-only Slack that's been very active talking about Watchmen stuff. So as low as $2 a month, you can jump on in there and chat with us literally all day and all night long. We never sleep. Watchmen, Watchmen, Watchmen. Wow. Yeah. Selvin, you and remember. Sleep, Remember, we taped this podcast 35 minutes ago. I'm just going to settle in with a couple of nostalgia pills based on Pete's life. <laughs> oh, bad idea. <laughs> <laughs>